0: Well, something that women bring to the table is producing something of economic value as well, and that's women's reproductive capital. That women actually are bringing to the table this ability to procreate and create other human beings. And this is a tremendous source of value in society because the same way economists are fundamentally concerned with, how do we make all the stuff that we consume? Well, people all across the world want to have children. And so being able to create children is a really important form of capital in society.
1: Welcome to The Ripple Effect, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the minds of Wharton faculty. I'm your host, Dan Loney. And in each episode, we'll be diving deep into the inspiration behind the groundbreaking research that Wharton professors have conducted and exploring how their findings resonate with the world today. We'll be covering a diverse range of topics, Bring you the latest insights and knowledge that you can apply to your life and to work. So get ready to dive into new ideas with the Ripple Effect. Picture this you've excelled in your academic pursuits, graduated from an envied university with honors, landed your dream job, and methodically climbed the corporate ladder, due in part to your strong creative and entrepreneurial mindset. So as your 30th birthday approaches, you and your spouse decide to get married and move into your first home together. The next question on your mind is whether or not the time is right to start a family. However, the outcome of that question often differs greatly depending on your gender. Our guest today, Corinne Lowe, has dedicated her career to exploring these questions and has developed some innovative ideas on the matter. In today's episode... Corinne will provide valuable insights into what she calls reproductive capital, or the economic value of fertility, and the kind of trade offs women face when it comes to balancing their career and family timing. Whether or not to have children and when to have them are fundamental questions, she says, and these kinds of choices need to be viewed through the lens of economics instead of being overlooked. Corinne, what was it that had you thinking about studying? gender bias in the workplace in the first place?
0: Well, I think that's a big question. I think the main thing that I'm interested in studying is the economics of being a woman and what sort of makes that unique and challenging and also special and um, and so you know I wanted to really study the issues that were facing women with the same seriousness that we apply to the rest of you know economic science and so yeah I think it wasn't so much starting with the perspective of gender bias but starting with the perspective of you know if economics is the science of maximizing subject to constraints subject to scarce resources what are those unique constraints that women are facing? What is that maximization or optimization problem look like from a woman's perspective? And how can we use the same tools that we use to study how firms make decisions um, and how consumers make decisions to understand the sort of um, unique spectrum of decisions that women need to make?
1: Yeah, and so research like this, is, I mean, it's being talked about, this issue is being talked about a lot uh, in, in society in general. So doing research on these areas becomes very important as we look to see where the development lies.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, one of the things I hope to accomplish with my research is that when we talk about these issues, I think, as I said, we kind of talk about them in a separate domain from economics. And I wanted to bring together the cutting edge science of economics with these issues that affect women's lives. Because, you know, a lot of what economists do is study how people make decisions. And I think women are people and women make decisions, you know, economic decisions as well. And decisions have big economic consequences. And so I hope I'm giving some language, um, such as by introducing the term reproductive capital and giving some language to the economics of women's decisions, um, to bring them kind of out of this domain of kind of treating them as like a separate set of issues that we would address through a separate set of tools and kind of, um, bring them back into this domain of economic decision-making and maximization and optimization.
1: So if you can, can you explain what reproductive capital really is?
0: Yeah, sure. So this is a term that I came up with when I was in grad school. And, um, you know, we talk about human capital. And so well, we'll start from the beginning, which is just, you know, uh, the term capital typically means, you know, material things of worth that can be used to create other things of value. right? So we talk about firms making a trade-off between capital and labor and so they're deciding how much do I want to use workers and how much do I want to use machines? Okay. Well, economists came up with this term human capital, which is the fact that skills that human beings have can be used to create things of, of economic value as well. And so it's not just you know that a machine can be a form of capital, but actually that you can have human capital and that's going to produce value. And so we talk about education as investing in human capital. So then I realized that while something that women bring to the table is producing something of economic value as well, and that's women's reproductive capital, that women actually are bringing to the table this ability to procreate and create other human beings, which is pretty fantastic. And this is a tremendous source of value in society because the same way economists are fundamentally concerned with how do we make all the stuff that we consume, right? How does all the, the consumer goodies that we want, how do those all get manufactured and what's the optimal way to do that? How do we create financial services, et cetera? Well, people all across the world want to have children. And so being able to create children is a really important form of capital in society. And so I wanted to acknowledge that and coin this term to demonstrate that this was a source of economic value. And I wanted to deliberately create that parallelism with human capital, because one of the things about reproductive capital that I highlighted in my research is that it's time limited. It depreciates, like all forms of capital depreciates, but reproductive capital is this very specific and unforgiving schedule, which is that, you know, as women aged into their late 30s and 40s, they go through um, a reproductive decline and eventually menopause. And so that time horizon of reproductive capital creates a fundamental trade-off between investments in human capital, which are going to be worthwhile because you can market those skills and get some economic returns that way, versus investing in using your reproductive capital and having a family and producing children. And that's not something you're going to market in general. So it's not going to ever be assigned this dollars and cents value on the traditional market, but it actually is something that's tremendously economically valuable. And we see that through people's choices, people's choices to invest their time and money in children. We see that children are something that people value. And therefore, we as economists should be concerned with how do they get produced?
1: Were you able to determine a level, a value that really associates what that reproductive capital can mean to a woman as they're not only trying to have a family, but also trying to build out their career?
0: Yeah. So that was something that was really important to me, was kind of trying to look at this as an economic trade off. And I said, you know what? There's the personal value that you put on having children. And, you know, it's going to be. Hard to quantify that, but we know that that's there, and that's something that is talked about a lot in the media, and it also has been talked about a lot in the in the research literature, right? That you know, women are kind of facing this trade off with their biological clock, and they you know value having kids, and this is something that they don't want to have to give up on. Um, but what I didn't see is really trying to put an economic value on it, and so to do that, I turn to a type of market where Reproductive capital has value, and that's the marriage market. So I thought, you know, if I can show that this actually affects women's perceived value on the marriage market, I'm going to be able to put an economic value on this resource of reproductive capital. And so what I did is I actually used a study where I randomly assigned age and income to dating profiles, and then I had men rate these women's dating profiles Mm. with randomly assigned age and income. And what I found is that for each year that a woman ages after age 30, she has to earn an additional $7,000 a year to get the same rating in this experiment. And because the age and the income are randomly assigned, Mm. I can attribute it to, you know, it really is just that age that's driving this. Whereas if I use data from the world or from, you know, a dating site where I saw who was interested in whom, I wouldn't be able to separate out the fact that somebody who's older has a lot of other things going on in her life, right? Somebody who's older might be more likely to be divorced. They might have a different photo. They might have a different career. But here I was randomly assigning the age. And so I'm holding that profile constant. And one person is seeing her at 35 and somebody else is seeing her at 36. And then I'm able to value What does that extra year mean? And I found that it was worth the equivalent of $7,000 of annual salary. And that was showing that men really valued reproductive capital from their potential partners. And then the way I was able to show that this is actually about fertility and reproduction rather than other dimensions of age was that I found that there was not this preference for men who already had kids from a previous relationship. And there wasn't this preference from men who didn't have good knowledge that there was a fertility decline between ages 30 and 40. So if they thought, oh, that's not something I have to worry about until like 45 or later, they didn't have the same preference where they showed declining ratings over that 30 to 40 time span. Um, And it also showed it was stronger for people who wanted a more serious relationship, who wanted to get married and who wanted to have kids. Whereas if you thought this was because you wanted somebody who was young and fun and cool to go drinking with, you might think the people who were looking for a more casual relationship would actually have that stronger preference for younger age. But it was actually the people who wanted to get married and wanted to have kids who showed this strong preference. And so, therefore, I attribute this preference to the market value of fertility and it's not the traditional market where we're able to put you know a price on it because it's going to be sold but it is a type of market where you're making these trade-offs between all these different possible traits in your partner and one of the things that makes a woman more attractive on the marriage market is bringing reproductive capital to the table and so of course it has personal value whether or not you're able to have kids and this trade-off you might be making with your career. But I wanted to show that there was a real economic cost to it as well. So that for women, if they were thinking about making an investment, you know, let's say their manager says, I want to send you on this assignment to Asia and it's going to be really good for your career, but you're going to have to work 80 hours a week and you know be totally 100% focused on you know launching this new team. And that's gonna cause you to say, okay, this is gonna delay my timeline for maybe getting married or having a family. It's gonna increase my earnings. It's gonna so it's gonna be good for my human capital, but there's gonna be a depreciation in my reproductive capital. She's facing an economic trade-off there where you know there's value that she could be making and money she could be earning by making this investment but there's an economic loss from making it as well. And so I wanted to put it in those terms to show that this isn't just a personal decision. This is an economic decision.
1: And and so realistically for a a lot of women, this is a a decision that they have to make in terms of their career slash in in correlation with their personal life uh, in order to see what they value the most at that particular time.
0: Yeah, but I think... You know, it's not just about what they value. It's about them sort of maximizing this economic equation where these are two things that are both valuable and, you know, she has to make a trade-off between them. And so I think you're absolutely right that the issue here is that both things are valuable and in some ways our society is not set up so that you can have it all at once, right? And so that's kind of exactly the policy recommendation that I would make is, you know, we can make this trade-off easier for women if we make it more possible to do both things at once. And we make there be less of a trade-off between maximizing your human capital and maximizing your reproductive capital.
1: With this information now, how do you think that this impacts the the consideration of women when they're thinking about planning their careers or they're thinking about planning their lives? What do you think the background is there? Well,
0: I this is something that women think about. And this is something that women sort of inherently know. And it's kind of hard for people who are not women to maybe believe that because it's not something that they've been faced with all their lives. But I have this paper about Israel making IVF free. And what we see is that when IVF is made free, you know, from a naive perspective, you might think, okay, that's going to impact the women who are like, you know, between 35 and, you know, early 40s who haven't had children yet. And now they're going to be able to use IVF to have children. But we actually see a tremendous impact on young women who are looking forward and planning their life and now they know that this technology is going to be available to them later in life. And so they make the decision to delay marriage. They make the decision to finish the degree. They make the decision to break off the relationship that was only so so and maybe, you know, play the field a little bit more and wait for somebody else. We see them increasing their representation in getting graduate degrees and fields such as um, being doctors and lawyers and um, professors and things that require these long term investments. And so we see young women making decisions in anticipation of how this reproductive time horizon is changing based on the introduction of this new technology. And so I think this is something that women know is a real constraint and they inherently plan around and they think about it and they talk about it um, and they talk about it with their with their mentors and you know they, they map out their careers relative to this reproductive constraint. And so as much as in some ways maybe My research is depressing and I'm showing, oh, now you have this other constraint to think about that it's also going to affect your appeal on the marriage market and it's kind of worth this much on the marriage market. I hope that it also makes women feel seen because they've been making this trade off. They've been facing this fundamental, you know, catch 22 of like, you can't do both. You can't have it all. And, you know, it can be crazy making to feel like, okay, I feel like there's this big issue that I'm dealing with. And, you know, yet it's the responsibility is all on my shoulders and it's treated as something that's like, because of me, because I want a family, because I, you know, value this. Now I'm the one who's kind of stuck in this bind and I wanted to tell and show women, no, this is a real economic constraint you're facing and you're facing it because you uniquely are in possession of something that's super economically valuable, reproductive capital, and you're trying to figure out how to maximize the value of this depreciating asset that you're holding, and this other asset that requires your time to invest in it, which is your human capital.
1: So, how do you think then does this impact employers with their thought process about the structure of the company and what to expect moving forward? And also, because this is obviously part of a of a public policy debate going on in our country right now as well about what policymakers need to be thinking about around this.
0: Yeah. So I hope that, um, that firms and policymakers don't just invest in um, fertility-extending technology. I think that that is kind of not solving the fundamental problem. And so sometimes that's the solution we see firms reach for is that they say like, oh, okay, we'll pay for our employees to freeze their eggs, right? But that's not solving this trade-off. That's just kind of kicking the can down the road. And it's kind of acknowledging if you're a firm that's doing that you're and you're not doing other things, You're saying, okay, I'm not going to work to make this more sustainable for you to balance career and family. I'm just going to ask you to wait and do it later after we've sort of gotten the value that we want to out of you. Right. And so, you know, I think that it's great if if firms want to pay for egg freezing, but they can't stop there. Right. I don't want to just move it further down the line because then women are going to be facing that trade off that can't work forever. So women are just going to face that trade off when the time comes. So I think what I would look for instead is that we truly place value as a society on reproductive capital and on caregiving and acknowledge that the time required for caregiving has not declined you know over the past 20 years and yet we have way more women in the labor force And we have way fewer households that are set up to have just one primary earner and one person who's able to do a lot of the home production and caregiving and focus exclusively on that. And so all employees are kind of looking for more flexibility and more ability to kind of do this caregiving work and, you know, have their families and prioritize that in their lives, because the structure of the American household has changed. It's by and large two earners, and we need to adjust to that. So I think that's one thing that I would say is just um, for firms to understand that that time spent on caregiving has not been declining. And in fact, it's been increasing. So since the 1990s, we've been spending more time with our kids because in this new economy, and this is um, was first documented in a paper by Ramey and Ramey called The Rugrat Race, but in this new economy where our children's human capital is such a determinant of their future success, parents are investing a lot more time with their children. And we understand a lot more that the time we put in results in the outcomes that they have and the achievements that they have later in life. And so parents are doing a lot more intensive parenting. And that's not something that you can solve with a machine. So throughout the 20th century, we saw time at home be replaced by machines like dishwashers and washing machines. And so for a little while, it got easier to do the work at home because we had technology. But technology can't replace our time spent with children. And so what we've seen over the past 25 years is that time going up. When we look at surveys like the American Time Use survey, we see people spending more time on caregiving, not less time on caregiving. And so that's not going away. And so it's something that firms fundamentally need to address. And so that's my first big message to firms is think about caregiving as work that all of your employees have to do and figure out how that fits in with the work that they need to do for you. And my second big message for firms, which is, I think, part of that is rethinking flexibility to mean not just flexibility during the work day, but flexibility across the life cycle So during the workday, it's kind of part of that first big message is, you know, we've recognized like Zoom is a great technology that we can use to like, you know, not necessarily require people to be in the office when their kid is homesick, right? Or, you know, breaking up their FaceTime so that, you know, you don't need to stay at the office till 8 p.m. and miss family dinner. Maybe you go home at 5, have when your kids get out of daycare, you have dinner with your family and then you log back on after they're asleep and, you know, get that last hour or so of work in. So that's flexibility across the workday. And I think that's something we need to invest in. But the piece that I think is new with this understanding of reproductive capital and its kind of specific schedule of decline, which is that it really depreciates most rapidly during a woman's 30s, which is the same time her human capital tends to increase in value and we see salaries going up the most, is that we need flexibility across the life cycle. So we need to say, why is it that The typical career path is you get your MBA and then immediately you jump on the partner track at the consulting firm or at the investment bank or that high investment period in whatever firm you're in where you're expected to put in, you know, 75 hours a week when you're in your 30s and that's the time when reproductive capital is declining. Is there a way to build in flexibility across the life cycle so that women can make some of these investments earlier or later? And be able to have more time to actually maximize the value of their human capital and the reproductive capital. And as we see people's working lives extend into their 70s, there's no reason why women shouldn't be able to make some of these big investments in their 40s. And be able to have the type of high powered careers that we see women dropping out of because firms too often force them to choose.
1: Thank you for listening to The Ripple Effect. We hope you found this episode informative and engaging. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review so that we can continue to bring
0: you the best insight from the Wharton School.